God, we are grateful for you. We're grateful that you've made yourself known to us. We're grateful that your grace has been long-standing to this, this church, this outpost of your kingdom that you've worked in our midst for a long, long time before uh, all of us who are gathered here today, before we were here, we thank you that you've planted this church, that you've continued to be faithful this, to this church. We pray that moving forward, you would be honored with our lives, that our eyes would be fixed on you, that we wouldn't be distracted by things before us or behind us or to our left or to our right, but that we would find joy and hope and sustenance in you. And so, Lord, we pray that you would bless your church. Lord, we pray that you would bless um, all of the churches that belong to you in, in this nation and around your world. And we pray specifically for uh, this gathering of saints that's here at 1400 South Wall Street. We pray that you would bless us, that you would make us faithful, that our eyes would be fixed on you, and that you would give us leaders who love you, who are faithful to you, who are devoted to you, and who have stable and humble hands that they might lead well. So we thank you for your grace we pray that you would be pleased and honored this morning. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. We all can have a seat. Church, I don't know if you've thought about this this morning yet or not, but you are a blessed people. Have you thought about that lately? You're blessed. And I am am blessed, and and so we're on the same page. We aren't blessed because of the house that we might happen to live in or not live in. We're not blessed because of the car that we drive. We're not blessed because of the clothes that we wear, the friends that we have, how easy or maybe not easy your life is. We're not blessed because family life is easy. None of those reasons are the reason that you and that I are blessed. The reason that you and that I, that we are blessed is because we belong to God. Amen? Amen. That can't be taken. That is true now. That is true tomorrow. That is true next decade and next century and on into eternity. You and I are a blessed people because we belong to the one God who is the creator and sustainer of all that is and He Praise God, has promised to do that for us moving forward. And so you, church, are a blessed people. Now, one of the ways that God's blessings are particularly visible to us is when He gives us leaders who love Him and who are devoted to Him. And so this morning, we're glad to be able to focus our our energies on seeing God glorified, on giving Him thanks as we install Justin Garcia uh, as the newest pastor of this church. So uh, last December, in case you haven't heard, hopefully you have, and even better yet, hopefully you were there with us last December when the church gathered together and voted about Justin Garcia, and we said that we see God's hand at work and on the life of Justin Garcia. We believe that he is leading Justin to be a pastor at this church. And so this morning, 
That's what we intend to do, is to do that publicly before us as we install Justin Garcia as um, the newest pastor here. And so this morning, I want us to do three main things. So we're going to be in 1 Timothy 3 in a moment. So if you want to go ahead and turn there, you can. But I want to gear us to thinking and reflecting on three things. First, I want us to think about who is the character of those who are to be our pastors, our elders. What is their life supposed to look like? What is their character? Who are they? And then the second thing I want us to reflect on is what is the job, what is the duty of a pastor? And then the last thing I want us to reflect on is what is the benefit for the church of godly pastors? And so those are kind of the the three overarching things that we're going to look at. And as we do that, I want us to fix our eyes in two directions. So uh, Justin Garcia is there towards the back. Um, The first direction I want us to be thinking about is almost kind of a a summons to you. So as you in a little bit come up and take vows and make promises, this is what we are calling you to do. This is who we're calling you to be. This is what we're calling you to do. And this is how we see you to be a blessing to this church that gathers here at 1400 South Wall Street. But the second direction that I want us to fix our eyes is among ourselves. And so you church have a job. You have a privilege. You have a responsibility. You see, one of the things that we believe is that the gospel is protected and promoted by the congregation. And so as we reflect and think and remind ourselves of who pastors are supposed to be, of what they're supposed to do, and of how they're supposed to be a blessing, you, church, congregation, have the authority, the responsibility to hold your leaders accountable to what it is that we have asked them to do. And so I want to remind us, refresh us on what it is that we are expecting from those that we ask to lead us. So that's kind of the the two directions that I want us to look as we reflect and think on who pastors are supposed to be, what they're supposed to do, and how they are to be a blessing, a benefit to us. So that's where we'll be this morning in our sermon. Um, We will, after the sermon is over, the uh, other elders, Justin Childers, Ken, and Justin Garcia will all come up, and Justin Garcia will take some vows, and then we will pray over him. One quick word about vows before we look that direction. Vows are something that we don't do a lot in our culture. We just, we don't make a lot of vows, which is probably a good thing because they should be a serious thing that we take seriously. One of the primary places you see vows happen is at weddings. And something that's true about vows that you miss a lot, particularly if you watch uh, movies when they uh, make their own vows often, is we sometimes tend to think of vows as statements of how we feel. Or sometimes people treat vows as saying something that's true right now. Or sometimes people think of vows even as declaring something that we believe. But that's not what vows are. Vows are promises. And promises are made to be kept whether we feel like it in that moment or not. Vows, promises aren't a temporary thing that comes and goes with the wind. They are a stable promise that endures through the ups and the downs. And so that's what we are going to be doing uh, towards the end of the service. So 1 Timothy 3, hopefully you've made your way there by now. We're going to pick up in verse 1. So 1 Timothy 3, verse 1 
Paul says this, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. To serve as an overseer is a noble thing that is worth aspiring to. That's a trustworthy saying, Paul says. So who are these overseers supposed to be? Verse 2, therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil." Now, the first thing I want you to notice is what I think to us will feel like an imbalance here. So you notice that Paul spends a whole lot of time talking about who a pastor is supposed to be, and very little words are dedicated to what a pastor is supposed to do. Did you notice that? whole lot of things about this is to be his character, and the things that he does seem to be almost kind of offshoots of that character. Now, this is different from how we tend to be, right? We tend to be a very pragmatic people. We tend to care a whole lot more about what someone does than who they are. We're a people who like job descriptions, We're worried about the bottom line, about getting things done, and usually if someone pushes us hard enough, then we can find a way to justify the means if it gets us the ends that we want. You see this? This is how we tend to operate in our world, but this is absolutely not what Paul says should be true of those who are to be pastors. And this means that a pastor is far less about doing and far more about being. Any doing that happens must flow from the being and not the other way around. Does this make sense? Our doing as pastors is supposed to flow from our being. And so instead of thinking primarily about the ends or about the doings, Paul leads us to think first and primarily about who these people are, what is their character supposed to be. And the first thing that he mentions about these overseers is that they are supposed to be, he says, above reproach. Now, this is likely supposed to be understood as a heading that everything else fits under. This, by the way, is an important theme throughout 1 Timothy. You'll you'll notice something interesting. So, Paul says here in verse 2 that an overseer is supposed to be above reproach, but this isn't something that you'll see is unique 
about overseers. Look down a few verses uh, to the section on deacons. And in verse 10, Paul says that the deacons also are supposed to be blameless. Same word, above reproach. And then if you were to flip over a couple of chapters to chapter 5, in verse 7, Paul says the same thing about widows who are supposed to be enrolled on the list of those who are cared for by the church. He says, chapter 5, verse 7, command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. And then if you were to continue on over to chapter 6, verse 14, Paul says the same thing about Timothy, that he is to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So so here's, here's what this means. This characteristic trait is not unique of overseers, of pastors, of elders. This is supposed to be a trait that characterizes all of Jesus's people. Now, clearly those who lead Jesus's people ought to be exemplary in their above reproachness of in their above reproachness, but this isn't something that's unique of those who are leading God's church. This is supposed to be true of all of us. So, the natural question is what does this above reproach look like? And so then Paul unpacks it. He says, first, Uh, that one who's above reproach will be the husband of one wife. Now, of this qualification, there has been a lot of ink spilled. Some people have said this means that the elder, the overseer, must be married. Some people have said this means that the elder, the overseer, can't have more than one wife. Some people have said this means that the elder overseer can't be divorced. Some people have said this means that he can't be remarried if he were to get divorced or if his spouse were to die. But the way that we read this, the way that we understand this here, is that the husband of one wife describes his character. And so the elder, the overseer, who is married, is supposed to be a one-woman kind of man. So he is one who doesn't cheat on his wife, obviously. He is one who doesn't uh, treat his wife wrongly. He is gentle. He is loving. He is patient. He is kind. He is considerate and patient and wise with his wife. He doesn't have eyes that are up looking around for other women or at other things. He is focused on his wife. He's a one-woman kind of man. This describes his character, the way that he relates to his wife is how we understand that here. Paul says he's supposed to be a husband of one wife, that he's also supposed to be sober-minded, self-controlled, and respectable. So this means that the overseer is supposed to live a life that is orderly and respectable. He's sober-minded, he's self-controlled, and he is respectable. He doesn't make snap judgments, he doesn't fly off the handle, he's not easily shaken, he doesn't lose his cool, he doesn't lose his patience. He is someone who can make judgments when things get rough and when things get shaky. He is stable and reliable, respectable, and self-controlled. This, Paul says, is who you're overseers should be. He says they're supposed to be self-controlled, respectable, and then he also says they are supposed to be hospitable. Now, in Paul's day, hospitality was a really centrally important thing. Uh, It was difficult 
for people in Paul's churches to move around from one place to another. Christians weren't well-liked. They didn't tend to have a lot of money. Some of their connections tended to be rather limited. And so if Christians were to move around the world to take the gospel to the ends of the earth and to proclaim this good news, it required churches to be hospitable towards one another, to welcome people from other churches and other cities to come into their homes, into their houses, to send them off with good things. Uh, This was necessary in Paul's day, but it is no less necessary for those who are to be overseers in our day. Overseers today should still be those who are characterized by hospitality. Now, quick word on hospitality. We tend to think almost exclusively that hospitality means opening your door and letting someone come into your house. But firstly, hospitality has to do with your attitude. You see, those who are to be overseers aren't just supposed to welcome people into their house, but they're supposed to live lives that welcome people into their lives. They're supposed to be open and bringing others in rather than pushing others out, rather than erecting walls and barriers and doing their own thing, minding their own business and getting to the end of the day. Overseers are supposed to be hospitable, reaching out, getting to know others, welcoming others in, taking care of the sheep that God has entrusted to those pastors. Pastors are supposed to be hospitable. And then notice next, Paul says that pastors also are supposed to be able to teach. Now this is really the only difference that you'll notice between the list, the qualifications for a deacon and for an overseer, is overseers are also supposed to be able to teach. And so one of the things this means is that pastors are supposed to be thinking men, not lazy men, right? Pastors, leaders, are supposed to be those who think hard and who think well, and notice Paul doesn't say smart. He says able to teach, which means this thinking and this studying is not devoted to themselves, but is leveraged in an effort to teach and help others. It's other Focused. And so overseers are supposed to be those who think hard, who study well, so that they might serve, bless, and help the church of God. Paul says overseers are supposed to be able to teach. He says they also are not supposed to be drunkards. They're not supposed to be violent, which might flow out of drunkenness. But instead of that, they are supposed to be gentle. So they're not devoting themselves to things that lead them to losing control. They're not unreliable. They're not unstable. They're not drifting around. They are rooted. They're thinking clearly. They are wise. And they are, Paul says, gentle. Paul says also that these overseers must not be quarrelsome. Now, many who say that they care about doctrine and about right theology tend to be a little bit quarrelsome. Sometimes these people tend to think that everything is a first-tier issue, and people like this generally regard their aggressive quarrelsomeness as a badge of honor and maturity, right? You've probably seen or met people like this who love to read and love to get their theological boxes nice and tidy and they love to argue and 
they tend to think of this as something that's actually a good thing, something that says they care deeply about doctrine. But what Paul says here and elsewhere is that people who are quarrelsome, it's actually a badge of immaturity. This emphatically is not the type of person that Paul says should be a pastor. On the contrary, Paul says pastors ought to be those who extinguish quarrels. The Bidiana Buile has said that the ears of a pastor should be like tombs for myths and fables. Right? Within a church, where do myths and fables go to die? He says, in the ears of a pastor. They don't move forward from there. Pastors are supposed to be quarrel enders rather than quarrel starters. They are supposed to be gentle and not quarrelsome. Paul says also they are supposed to not be lovers of money. Now this is important because in chapter 6, Paul tells Timothy that the root of evil is the love of money. So it would make sense that Paul would say that those who are going to lead God's church must not love money because one who loves money does not love God, does not care for God's people, is simply thinking about what they can get from each situation that happens to be around them. And because pastors are giving counsel, are giving advice, are sometimes handling money, it is crucial that pastors not be devoted to money, that they do not have a love of money. Paul says also that overseers must manage their households well. And the reason Paul says that this is the case is he says, if you don't manage your small household well, how can you be entrusted to manage the larger household of God well? The answer would obviously be, you can't. Those who aren't respectable, those who aren't able to manage a little, Paul says, can't be entrusted with more. And so one of the grounds for testing of whether an overseer is able to fill that office or not is how he manages his household. So he's supposed to manage his household well, and he's also supposed to not be a recent convert, because this is someone who is supposed to have visibly shown themselves loyal to Jesus over a season. They need to be proven. They need to be reliable. They need to be trustworthy and stable. And Paul says, finally, that these overseers are supposed to be well thought of by outsiders. How do people outside of the church think about this person, Paul says, is crucially important. And so Paul says, overseers, as their character goes, are supposed to be men who are above reproach in all areas of life, right? Not, not a little bit, but every area. They're supposed to be above reproach in the way that they treat their family, their wife, and their children. They're supposed to be above reproach in the way that they handle things at the church, in the way that they work with those who are following Jesus. They're supposed to be above reproach in the way that they interact with people who aren't following Jesus. In every area of life, these overseers are supposed to be above reproach. Now, something else you should notice about this list. Notice how, at least maybe at a first reading, perhaps unimpressive, 
this list is? Like, this isn't elite qualifications. Right? There's, there's nothing on here about someone's uh, job history or about what they were doing before they were following Jesus. Like, if you were to read this list and ask, how is this different from what Paul or Jesus would expect of anybody who's following Jesus, you probably wouldn't have much to say. And this, friends, is part of the point. Right? Pastors aren't super Christians. Right? They're not a different category of followers of Jesus. It's not as if you have normal Christians and then super Christians who happen to be pastors. The requirement is that pastors be faithful to the call of Jesus, proven over a time so that they're not a recent convert, that they would be worthy of imitation and able to teach. That's it. Faithful faithful followers of Jesus over a long period of time so that they can be trusted, reliable, known, that their lives are worthy of imitation and able to teach. That is the character that should rule the life of those who are to be overseers of God's church. So that's the the character of those who are to lead God's people. The second thing that I want us to think about is what is the job of a pastor. So if this is who pastors are supposed to be above reproach in all areas of life, what is it that pastors are supposed to do? Now, I mentioned a minute ago that Paul doesn't give a whole lot of instructions on exact things that pastors are supposed to do, right? He talks a lot about who they are and anything that happens to go along with what they do tends to be just an outflow of who they are. So for example, Paul says, that they are to manage their household well. And the reason he says that they're supposed to manage their household well is because if someone doesn't know how to manage his own household, Paul says, how will he care for God's church? So one of the tasks of pastors is to care for God's church. Something I think particularly interesting, the only other place in the whole New Testament that this word care shows up is in Luke 10. Those of you who are really good with your Bible memorization know Luke 10 is the parable about the Good Samaritan. You know the story. The Good Samaritan picks up the one who's been beaten up and left for dead, and what does he do for him? He cares for him. But he doesn't stop there. He then brings that man to the inn, He hands him to the innkeeper, and he tells the innkeeper to do something in particular. He tells the innkeeper to care for the man who's been beaten up and left for dead. That's the only other place this word shows up in the New Testament. So what is the duty, what's the job of those who are supposed to be pastors in God's church? Well, that's a pretty open-ended job. Uh, This will look different in different seasons. So sometimes, like in the story of the Good Samaritan, caring for God's church will mean picking up, bandaging, and caring for those who are in pain and grief and suffering. It'll be kind of trauma care. Sometimes everything is falling apart, and the job of a pastor in that season is to care for the one who is aching, who is hurting, who looks like the man on the side of the road. Sometimes caring for God's church looks like working to see people reconciled who are currently at odds. 
Sometimes caring looks like speaking hard truths to people who don't want to hear them. And this is why it is really important that the character of the overseer is above reproach. Because the wisdom to know when to say what and how to say it makes a huge difference because caring for the people of God looks different in different situations. Right? This is one of the things that is so fascinating to me that Paul writes this to Timothy who's in Ephesus in the first century and we are still looking to this for guidance and help on what pastors are supposed to do in Belton, Texas, the other side of the world in the 21st century. It's open-ended, it's wise, and what this looks like will look different in different seasons. So pastors are supposed to care for the church of God. Pastors also, you would assume, since Paul says they're supposed to be able to teach, pastors are supposed to be those who teach God's people. Now, this was something that even the early apostles, shortly after Jesus ascended into heaven, saw as crucial to their job as leading God's people. And so you remember in Acts 6, this complaint arises about some widows, the Hellenistic widows, getting skipped over in the distributions of food, and they were being left out and left to be hungry. And this complaint threatened to split the church and to take all of the time that these apostles had to lead God's people. And so what did they do? Well, they raised up deacons to take care of this task so that they might devote themselves to teaching and prayer. So this is what it looks like to lead. One of the places this leadership happens is as overseers teach and pray over and for God's people. Now again, what this teaching looks like, the exact setting that it's in, how all of this looks like is pretty vague. It's, it's open-ended, but what is true is that the overseers are supposed to teach and lead and care for God's people. So three tasks that, uh, Justin, I want, I want to leave you with, and what I want to commission you to, is you're supposed to care for God's church, particularly this gathering of saints right here. You're supposed to teach, and you're supposed to faithfully pray for these people. He's, I mentioned this earlier, is going to be taking some vows, making some promises. And the, the last promise that we're going to ask him to agree to, I think, captures this well. He's going to be asked this question. Are you now willing to take personal responsibility in the life of this congregation as an elder to oversee the ministry of the church, to devote yourself to prayer, the ministry of the word, and the shepherding of God's flock, relying upon the grace of God in such a way that Miller Heights Baptist Church and the entire church of Jesus Christ will be blessed. Now, that's a pretty full promise. That's a lengthy list of things, but I think it captures well what the job of a pastor is supposed to be. So, we've talked about who pastors are supposed to be. We've talked about what pastors are supposed to do. And the last place that I want us to reflect on is how are pastors supposed to be a blessing to the church of God? And I've got three things for you if you're taking notes. The first way that pastors are supposed to be a blessing is that pastors will shore up personal weaknesses and increase wisdom. So, Again, let me remind you one more time. Pastors are not super Christians. 
It's not as if weaknesses go away once someone becomes a pastor. Their weaknesses still remain. And this is one of the reasons that we see it as a huge blessing that the church be led by a team of pastors rather than by a single pastor, because pastors have weaknesses too. They're not super Christians. They're not elite. They're not in a separate category. They are simply faithful followers of Jesus who the church has recognized and said, we want you to lead us well. And so difficult situations are handled better, not by an individual, but by a team. And so one benefit for you, church, as well as for those of us who are pastoring, is that a team approach means weaknesses get shored up and wiser decisions, Lord willing, are made. So that's that's one benefit. The second benefit that I, I want you to note is that a team of pastors eases burdens and provides a way to share loads. So sometimes the church of God is doing really well. And by and large, people are faithful and consistent and growing. And life as a pastor is incredibly easy and joyful and life-giving. And some seasons, people are really struggling. And there is a lot of grief going on. There is a lot of pain going on. There is faithlessness happening. And the task and the burden of calling God's people to be faithful to their Lord can be a very burdensome heavy, and busy task. And in those seasons, if pastors were left on their own, remember, pastors have weaknesses too, they would tend tend towards snapping and unloading on God's people in ways that would be ungodly. But having a team of people allows the burden to be spread allows God's people to be served better and allows for, Lord willing, more faithful shepherding. The last benefit that I want you to notice is that a team of of pastors also provides stability in turbulent times. Stability when times are turbulent. So in our world that is not set right, where sin abounds and where chaos comes in, sometimes, oftentimes, disaster strikes. And in these moments when, I don't know, maybe someone gets really sick and ends up in the hospital for a lengthy time, or when someone has to step down or God forbid, when a leader finds himself embroiled in sin and needs to be removed, the church's fate neither rises nor falls with any individual man. Right? There is stability in turbulent times because the church is not led by a single individual, but by a team, so that when disaster comes in, when things get shaken up, when plans get thrown into the air and things have to start from scratch, there is stability for God's people when times are shaky and are moving. And we've seen this recently. So a a pastor, an elder, an overseer is to be above reproach in every area of life, with their family, with their church, with strangers, with those outside of the church, they are supposed to be above reproach 
they are supposed to manage and care for God's household well. And this will often express itself by teaching and by prayer. Some of that's visible and some of that is not visible. And then there are benefits to being led by a team of pastors. That there is stability, that burden is eased, and wisdom is increased. And so it's for some of these reasons, for all of these reasons and more, that we are excited uh, to welcome Justin Garcia in um, as, as the newest pastor. We're thankful for your willingness and your devotion to serve this church. Church, I hope you are excited about this as well. What I want to do is I want to go ahead and pray for us. And when I get done praying, uh, Pastor Justin and Ken and other Justin, if y'all will go ahead and make your way up to the stage, we'll uh, go through vows after I pray. Father, you are good. You are kind to us when we don't deserve it. You have blessed your people in more ways than we can count, and so we pray that you would make us a thankful bunch. We pray that you would increase our trust in you because we've seen that you are indeed trustworthy, that you are faithful, and that you keep your own until the end. And so we thank you for the blessing of pastors. We thank you for Justin Garcia and his life. We pray that you would make him a faithful pastor, that you would make him a patient teacher and a wise counselor. We pray that you would grant that in all things he may serve without reproach so that your people would be strengthened so that your name would be glorified in all the world. And all of this we ask through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who with you and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns forever and ever. Amen.